Okay, so we are finished chapter three. Remember, we have put the, at least for now, I don't think it's coming back, but maybe it will for a little bit. But for now, we have finished the category and the subject of fasting. We have uh, done it justice, and we are now moving on to what's really the um, focus of what we're trying to talk about, which is the actual concept of tshuva. So remember, when we were talking about fasting and we were talking about, um, you know, all those extra things we do for atonement, that only happens once repentance is done. So we kind of skipped ahead. We, we, We went from kind of briefly talking about repentance and talking about different types of sins and different types of, you know, what each kind of sin requires. And then we went into this whole idea of fasting, which was the atonement aspect of the conversation. But now we're going to go back to talking about tshuva itself, which is the repentance itself. But of course, in good Tanya fashion, we are going to be taking some detours along the way, right? So we are now back at the um, at the table with tshuva, right? But as we explore more and we want to go deeper and understand what tshuva actually is and how we have to do it and what is the different types of repentance and what are different types of punishments and you know, there's going to be a lot of things. What is the soul and how do we? you know, what happens to the soul when we sin and how do we rectify it, right? We're going to get into all these things, even though we touched upon them in the first two chapters, but very briefly. So now we are going to start that meandering journey that's going to take us along the way to, um, to, to really understand in a, in a deeper way, the, the inner workings of Chuva, our soul and, um, and how we achieve that connection to Hashem that we're looking for. Okay. So the so to remind who, who remembers what the crux of tshuva is. When we say that we have to repent, right? What does that mean? What is the what is the main idea that we're getting at? And the psalmist saying not to do the sin again in the future. Right, that forward thinking, that forward, like that, that, that future, like commitment to Hashem, right? So it's, it's the commitment to the future and the process of returning to Hashem authentically with your whole heart, right? That's, it, it's a positive thing, right? It's, we want to reconnect. We want to return, right? That's why tshuva really isn't, the definition of tshuva isn't really repentance. It's actually return, right? And we're actually going to talk about that. So that, that's that's really the root of what we're trying to do here. And um, so, so we know, we, we discussed in the early chapters that that tshuva is about the return. It's about the commitment in the future to not, you know, behave the same way to make those changes. But we really need to understand it deeper. It requires more extensive um, clarification. And 
And because we're learning Tanya and because we're learning Hasidus, that clarification is going to come through Kabbalah and through Zohar. We're going to be spending a lot of time really, you know, kind of analyzing what the Kabbalah, what the Zohar says about Chuba. Okay, so we are going to start this chapter with a teaching from the Zohar. And um, it says in the Zohar that Chuba is actually um, a combination of two words, and that's what gives us the um, idea and the, the hint of what we're supposed to be doing when we do teshuva. So teshuva is tashuv. Okay, I'm going to write it in the chat box. Tashuv, and then hey, the letter hey, okay? Um, what does that mean? It means return to the letter hey. What does the letter hey refer to? Take a wild guess. Hashem, right? Tashuv hey, returning to Hashem, um, which is actually like, I don't, I feel like maybe I knew this, but it feels new. Like, I don't remember really focusing on the idea that teshuva, and you split up the words, is tashuv hey, returning to Hashem, okay? So teshuva has these, like, restorative power, right? What is What does teshuva do? It heals the soul of the sinner, okay? And it... Oh, I see it. One second, let me just let someone in. And it rectifies the spiritual energies in the divine realm that were affected by the sin. So remember, in the first chapter, we discussed how when you sin, what is it? It doesn't affect only you. It doesn't affect only this world. It affects the, all the upper worlds too. Remember when we, how we spoke about everything has this cosmic connections and these cosmic ramifications. So what we do here directly affects the spirituality and the revelation of God in the upper worlds. Okay. So teshuva, what does a teshuva do? It is the balm and the um, restorative powers to the soul and also allows what was damaged in those spiritual realms to be healed as well. Okay, so Hashem, this is where we're going to get, you know, a little mystical, right? But it's actually practical at the same time, because that's what Tanya does, right? It brings the mystical into practicality. Hashem's most sacred name, which is also referred to as the Tetragrammaton, right, is the name of Hashem, that's the Yud, the Hey the vav and the hey, okay? Now, you will hear me pronounce that because we don't want to say it in vain, right? We only want to say it during prayer or when we make a blessing. We don't just want to keep saying it. So the way that it's referred to um, when we are talking about or when we're learning about it is called havaya, okay? Yud, hey, vav, hey, havaya. So when you hear me say havaya, it's referring to this special highest name of God, which is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, okay? Um, 
without saying the name without saying the name right so um so the the damage to these worlds right is described metaphorically as this explosion or this fragmentation of the name of Havaya, the tetragrammaton name of Havaya. Um, so what happens? So basically, what happens when we sin? The the actual name of Hashem is. Dis, the letters of the name that make up this important name of Hashem are disconnected. Okay, because everything the the name of uh, there's different names of Hashem, and this name of Hashem is 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 the um, most sacred. And when we sin, it is kind of destroying or disconnecting this name of Hashem through which. Hashem's powers shine through, right? It's just not, not, it's not just the name, right? The name of Hashem connotes and um, represents the essence of Hashem. So when we sin, we are affecting the essence of Hashem, which is revealed to us through the name of Hashem, okay? So specifically, the letter He um, becomes dislocated from the name when we sin okay so teshuva is the process by which the hay is restored to the name right and incorporated back in that's why another reason why tashuv hay right we're returning the hay back into hashem's name right um and this i mean we learned this from the name of chuva itself right tashuv hay return return the hay so it's actually if you if you see the name yod hey vav hey there's actually two hays in the letter of in the in this name of hashem and the two the two letters hey are um hinting and referring to there's two levels of chuba we actually talked about this in the beginning right there's two levels of chuba there's a higher level and the lower level um and so when we do teshuva, depending on which level we're accomplishing, it 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 affects one of one of the letters of the hey of Hashem. Any questions? Okay, so right, some kabbalistic esoteric thoughts, but really, it's it's if you think about it, it's it's practical in the sense of understanding the um, dynamics by which, first of all, Hashem reveals himself to us and really understanding the, the magnitude of our actions, right? So when we um, act in a way that is opposite of Hashem's desires and wills, you are actually affecting the literal name of him, right? Where the, 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 letters, the, the, the letters of the name are disconnected and can't function together properly until we do teshuva, which restores that. Don't get stressed. Don't get stressed. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Okay. So the, the low, so 
it's interesting. So the, I actually want to write this down for you because I can't really type my, my keyboard doesn't really have a Hebrew setting quite right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to write this down because I'm going to go Yud. I'm going to write Hey disconnected. So it's not, I'm not really spelling out Hashem's name. And then we have Hey. Okay. So you see, so Yud, Hey, I should have written it bigger, but Hey, Vav, Hey. So the lower Hey, so the last Hey is the lower Hey. Okay. It's so it represents the lower chuba. For some reason, my brain wouldn't my brain would associate the lower chuba with the first hay for some reason. I don't know why if anyone else's brain went there, but that's kind of where my brain is. So that's why I want to clarify. And the higher and the first hay is the higher teshuva. Okay. You can take a picture of the screen, I think, if you don't want to write it down. So when we um, so when we restore the first hay, that's when we do the higher level of chiva, the upper chiva. When we restore the last hay, that's when we restore the lower chiva. Okay. So we did kind of touch upon the fact that there is a higher level chuva and there is a lower level chuva. Um, but we're definitely going to not so much today, but throughout the next couple of chapters, be spending much more time really delving into these different levels of chuva in more detail as we go along. So we're not going to know of all today, but just know that it's coming. We're slowly going to be exploring the different levels of chuva. Okay. And we're also going to explain in detail um, all the four letters of this special name of Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, okay? But before we get there, dun, 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 we have a question, right? Because that's that's the way we do it. We have lots of questions which take us on little tangents. So we, under, we have to understand this in order to understand this, right? We are building like this pyramid of, of knowledge and we're like, it's like, think of it as scaffolding, right? In order to understand what's going on up here, we have to understand what's going on in the foundation, right? So many times when you might be get, you know, you could get frustrated, like, oh my gosh, like, why are we going off on this tangent? Or we're spending so much time talking about something else, but really, no, this is the foundation. This is our building blocks to understand what's going on up here. Okay, so the question is, the Tanya asks another question on a, a teaching of the Zohar that's connected to Teshuvah. What's the teaching and what's the question? Um, so the Zohar says that there seems to be a limit to the power of tshuva. Okay, what does the Zohar say? The Zohar says that the tshuva is not effective on certain sins. Okay, and one of the sins that um, it mentions is our favorite sin that we always talk about is emitting semen in vain, right? Like for some reason, we just, that's where we go. <laughs> it's a really, really tricky transgression, right? Like it has all of these complicated, complicated aspects to it. So um, 
It also says it's the chuba is not effective for sexual sins or the sin of emitting emitting semen in vain. Sexual, I don't, I, I meant to ask before class, but then I forgot. I don't know exactly what the sexual sins refer to. It says blemish, blemishing the covenant. It's not referring to adultery because adultery um, is in a different category onto its own. So I have to ask what that means. I don't know quite yet, but we can just focus on the emitting semen in vain. It says that um, the chuba does not, is not effective on that sin. So, which is a very shocking statement. Why is, why is this so shocking? Because we've been taught over and over and over again, what did we learn? That nothing stands in the way of chuba. Like you're never a lost cause, right? We know this, this is ingrained in us that no matter how far we go, there's always a path of return. And here the Zohar says, well, no, not, not for these sins, not, not for the emitting semen and not for certain sexual sins, which probably are actually sins that are, are common, right? So we're taking, we're taking a sin that's not even so extreme, right? And we're saying, no, you can't, you can't do tshuva um, in connection to that sin, okay? Um, and it seems like it's even more serious than the violations of idol worship and forbidden relations and murder. Like, how could that be, right? Um, so how does the Zohar claim that tshuva is ineffective in any scenario? It's not possible for, the, for, for that to be true. We, I mean, we, we can't say that our foundation of, of what we learn and, and who we are, right? Because we know Hashem is all merciful and just never gets sick of us, right? No matter how many times we do the same thing over and over again, he always welcomes us back. So what does this mean? And Rashi's Chachma um, answers the question. And it says what the Zohar meant to say is that the lower tshuva is not effective for these sins of these, these sins of sexual nature right? The lower teshuva is not effective, but the higher teshuva is, okay? The higher teshuva is required for these types of sin. Simple answer, but obviously it requires further explanation. But you're going to have to hang in very tight because we're not really going to have this clarified until chapter nine, and we're only on chapter four. And it takes us a long time to get through the chapters. So file it away as a question that we need to further discuss because we're, we're going to get there. But remember, we need some scaffolding first. And don't worry, we will get there. But we first are going to go other places, right? So what do we have? Why, why, we, why are we not going to answer this quite yet? Because we really have to understand Shuva itself a little bit more to understand the first of all the differences between the levels of chuva, the nuances and and all the other ideas surrounding it. And then once we understand chuva more, then we'll probably be able to understand the Zohar statement of only the higher chuva working on these specific sins. Harry, do you have a question, or you're just stressed out? You're good. Who me? Yeah, are you good? 
Uh, yeah, I'm just really concentrating a lot okay. on what you're saying. Okay, good. I'm I just want to make sure we're not, I'm not distressing anybody over here. The, li- the, 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 the first hay is the higher one, right? Yes. The first hay is the higher one. one. And for some reason, that is messing with my head. Like, it doesn't feel natural. But um, yes, the first hay is the higher chuba. So, in, so what we know for sure is that, yes, the statement of there's um, nothing stands in the way of chuva is true, right? For these specific sins that we just mentioned, we're going to need the higher chuva to rectify them. We're going to understand that more in chapter nine, but we first have to talk about the chuva itself and the love and all the, the, the nuances of chuva before we really um, understand the answer to this question in full. Okay. So, Remember, we are doing a lot of layers. So in order to understand chuva more, we first have to really understand some of the ramifications of our sins better as well. Okay, so you see the layering process we have going on here? We have to, every time we bring something in, we, we're like, wait a second. Well, we actually can't answer that yet because we have to understand this first. So we need to understand chuva more to be able to understand the differences of these higher different levels of chuva. Now, in order to understand chuva more, we first have to understand what are some of the consequences and ramifications that happen when we do sin and, and what, what do those look like before we understand how to repent for them, right? We have to understand what's the, what happens if we don't repent. What happens if we're sinning and the consequences are actually f- following through, like the consequences are actually being applied. So what are some of the, the consequences that come when we sin? Um, so most sins have um, a, I guess the word is a kind, like a, like you go to, like you would, like in the times of the temple, you would go to the base den, right? You'd go to the court of law and they would present to you your repentance process right? And, and it's mostly, usually it's court ordained is I guess what I'm trying to say is court ordained. So humans, rabbis down in this world would, or would tell you what your repentance process is. There are some transgressions that don't get court ordained decrees. It comes directly from God, right? What are, and we, we mentioned them, but we're going to talk to, uh, about them a little bit more today. One of them is called kares. You remember excommunication, right? And one is death through the agency of heaven. Okay. These are the two most severe divinely imposed consequences. Most times when we sin, there will be court ordained or court ordered consequences, right? We live in the physical world. There are physical rabbis that Hashem entrusted to guide us back to the path, right? So whether it's lashes or it's um, sacrifices or it's a charity or monetary, right? There's a lot of different ways to to repent besides for the, um, you know, that commitment to doing better. There was, there was definitely more to the process, but there are two divinely imposed 
um, consequences that are for the most severe sins, right? And that is um, kares, which is, how does it translate here? Um, so does Hashem put you to death on that? Yeah, so I'm going to tell you exactly what happens. I think it's excision. Does that make sense? Like kares is like, it's not excommunication. It's not like you get excommunicated from the physical people. It's like you actually die, right? You, your, your life is cut short. Um, and these are, I guess it's divinely imposed. It, it says here cutting. Hurry. So these are the most severe divinely imposed um, retribution <laughs> for your sin. So what happens? What happens when you when somebody transgresses a sin that the only way to to achieve full repentance is kares or divinely imposed death, which I did not know was a thing. There's kares and then there's death through the agency of heaven. I did not know that those were two separate things. What's the difference? Um, so for a transgression whose punishment is kares, in the times of the temple, the transgressor would physically die before reaching the age of 50. Okay? And for the transgression whose punishment is death through the agency of heaven would die before the age of 60. Okay, so charis is more severe. There's charis, which you die before 50, and there's the death of the agency of heaven, which you die before the age of 60. Physically both? Physically. Physically. Very good question. Very good question. Because you would think, because this is a divinely imposed um, punishment, that it would be spiritual. But it's a divinely imposed punishment that has very, very much physical ramifications, the physical ramifications, actual physical death. Not spiritual death, but physical death. Okay? So it's not a spiritual punishment. It's, so even though it's not administered by an earthly court, it's still very much a physical punishment. Okay? So it's a physical consequence of premature death. Yes. Can you say, can you explain again what caress is? So caress is death caress. before the age of 50. No, but what is kares? What word? does it mean? Yes. Cutting. Like basically Hashem's cutting this person's life short. Oh, okay. So it, it um, the word kares actually means cutting. Okay. And it's used because that person's life is being cut short. And then death through the agency of heaven is called is death by the before the age of 60. Now, I don't know. I actually don't know which transgressions merited. Like, I don't know the difference between kares and the death through the agency of heaven, which transgressions went to what. It's not super important because it doesn't apply today. We don't, Hashem doesn't use kares and death through the agency of heaven um, today as a known punishment. Maybe that happens, but like we as humans wouldn't know how to judge that because we also don't have a divinely inspired court, right? We don't have a Jewish court of law. 
So the Jewish court of law would be the one to kind of confirm that was that was kares, right? Or that was divinely divinely death. What is it? What is it again? Death uh, by through the agency of heaven, right? So how would you like if someone just dies before the age of fifty? How would you know that that's why they died, right? It's only because the court was the one that was when he went to court and he was going for his you know, punishment or consequence. And the court says, okay, your, your consequence is kares. And when that person dies before 50, you would know what that was. Right? And is it sudden? Is it? Yeah, it could sudden? be sudden. It could be said. Yeah. Could be sudden. Like, or does, no, or does Hashem make us suffer for a couple of years and then die? So, I, so it's a good question. I think the uniqueness of the kares and the death, the agency of heaven is that it was sudden. Okay. Right. Um, that it's all, you know, all of a sudden, I don't think that like it, the suffering is usually like, if you're going to live, Hashem gives us suffering, right? He wants us to suffer in this world so we can continue living. But if, if there's death, it's, it's, it, it my understanding, I don't know a lot, whole lot about this stuff. Cause I don't really want to know too much. <laughs> I mean, it's not something that I delve myself into, but um, it also could happen right away because if someone sins that merits this kind of punishment it just says death before the age of 50 or before the age of 60 doesn't mean it's going to be when he's 49 or when he's 49 and a half it could be right away let's say he sins when he's 25 and he he deserves curries it could be from now until 50 he's cut off from his people literally physically now, some, yes, Robin. Um, the Batman decided most punishments to cleanse people from their sins. Uh, you mentioned lashes, monetary, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Batman decided these chorus and death, or Hashem decided? So, what my understanding is that the, the Batman is um, well versed in the punishments that, that earn chorus. So a person, so they're not assigning the punishment, but they, they recognize it. Yeah. They're like, oh, you can't, oh, it's like, oh, oh, you came for this. Like you came to court for this sin. Oh, like it's out of our hands. That's right. Okay. That's so the court has that recognized that it's out of their yeah. hands. Kind of informing or, you know, being like, this is, this is the process that, that, that you're now subject to. Got it. Thank you. Okay, so um, question. Uh, yes. um, yeah. Um, so in those cases, the real punishment is that your neshama doesn't get to complete its mission. Exactly. That's why it's it's basically cutting somebody's life short, right? It's right. like. They were supposed to live longer. They were supposed to have more time in this world. They were supposed to be able to do more mitzvahs. They were supposed to be able to whatever, but, but that got cut short. And um, I was going to say something. I forget what I was going to say. It'll come back to me, but um, there are the, the Torah, the Tanya gives us a few examples of somebody that experienced kares. Now, I also have my own questions, which is, is there a way to get out of Kares? Like, is there like, 
is it like set in stone, black and white, or is there a scenario where somebody could get out of curries? I don't know. That's a question that I have to ask. Oh, and I remember what I was going to say. Um, some people think that curries is not only a death, a physical death, but a spiritual death as well. Meaning even after that person physically dies, their soul also doesn't get to reconnect back with Hashem. It's a soul cut off too. Thank God, most people do not agree with that. And it's um, purely a physical death. And the soul can go through its cleansing process after that and eventually reunite with Hashem. So that's the general consensus. But there, just so you know that there, it's a very serious thing to the extent that some people, some rabbis even think, even go to the extent to say that this is also a spiritual death, that when you, when, when that person's life is cut short, their soul is also ex continues to be excommunicated from God. Super harsh. Um, it doesn't align with Hasidus because like, what do you mean? There's no recourse. Like even after that person's life ended, there's no recourse for the soul. So I'm glad that I think the mainstream idea is that that's not the case, that it's a physical death, that person's life got cut short, probably so that his soul will have the opportunity to cleanse itself and reconnect with Hashem. So one of the examples that uh, the Tanya brings of a person who got kares was this person named Hanania Ben Azor. He was originally an authentic prophet, okay? But then he became guilty of false prophecy. So he was originally legit. He was a prophet. He was holy. He was, you know, the word of God was being spoken through him. And then he went astray. And um, what did he say? What was his false prophecy? I'm going to quote from the Tanya. I'm not about to like four. Um, it says, thus speaks the God of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried him to Babylon. So why was this a false prophecy? It contradicted Jeremiah's prophecy that the temple was going to be destroyed. He was saying here that it's going to be whatever. It's going to go away for two years. It's going to come back. He was prophesizing that the temple wasn't going to be destroyed. And Yirmiyahu, um, Jeremiah prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed. So he prophesied against Yirmiyahu. He said a false prophecy and the punishment for being a false prophet is, and if you can imagine, extremely serious. Because if you're a prophet and you are telling people God's word, you better be right, right? You better be somebody who's trustworthy or you're going to lead a lot of people astray. It's a huge responsibility. So the, the punishment of false prophecy is kares. And indeed, um, Hanania ben Azur, this prophet, died in that same year. He did, I mean, I don't know how old he was, but he pretty much died right away. Um, so that is one of the examples that the Tanya gives about someone who actually experienced kares. And there's another example they give about Er and Onan who were very, um, there's one thing that if you sin 
especially in the aspect of, of spilling seed in private. And it's something that, you know, is not, not something that you publicize and you, whatever, Aaron Onam were evil in the eyes of God because they wasted their seed, which is punishable by, punishable by death through the agency of heaven. And they were also put to death immediately. So they were very, um, like public and proud of the way they were behaving and they paid for it with by death they also were um experienced that so this however is in biblical times okay this doesn't happen now to our knowledge right or we we would never know like if somebody died suddenly or their life was cut short we would never know if that was an act of courage or death through agency of God, because there's no way to know that. First of all, we don't know that person's private life. We're not the judge and jury, right? We don't have a court of law telling us that this is what's happening. So just like we can't bring sacrifices and we don't get lashes and we don't have the regular ways that we atoned in biblical times, courage and these kinds of deaths also don't really apply. Um, so the Tanya questions, why do we not find this, these punishments in later generations, right? Um, why don't we? And also like we know that it feels problematic because we know that there are, throughout the generations, there are many people who are transgressing sin that deserve kares or death through the agency of God. Why does it have to be like a whole sentence? Like, can't we find another one word like Kares and death through the agency of God. Like, like why? We need another short word for that. But, um, and why? Are they both the same? No, they're two different. Remember, one is before the age of 50 and one is before the age of 60. Okay, so that's why there's two different. Right, I'm just saying, I wish there was a shorter word for, you know, for death death through the agency of God instead of a whole sentence. Yeah, Um, okay. But, so there's obviously people who are transgressing these sins that, in biblical times would, you know, deserve this kind of punishment. So, and yet they're living long, happy lives, right? Like, so how does that work? Um, and, and there's a further question that if the lives of these people would be miserable, you could say that they these people received a punishment that's somehow equivalent to death right so let's say somebody okay we're making a lot of assumptions here but let's say someone who who is outwardly evil right who acts in a very negative way we not the private person who we don't know what's going on in their life there's somebody who's actively transgressing and acting in a very very negative evil way right and we see that their lives like if their lives would be full of suffering, we could rationalize and say, okay, fine. They're not dying. They didn't, they didn't get harassed, but their life is so miserable that it's, 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 it's uh, equivalent to death. But, but then we see people that, um, who, who deserve harassed or the death or agency of God and live long, happy, healthy lives, right? So that feels like, what's the rhyme and the reason to that? And like, why does that happen? And we have questions. We have questions, right? It's almost like 
Actually, it's the opposite of the question of why bad things happen to good people, right? You know, that age old question, which we never have an answer to. So it's the opposite of that. It's like, why do good things happen to bad? Why are bad people living long, long good, healthy, prosperous lives? Okay, guess what? Do you think we're going to answer this question right now? We're not. <laughs> we are first. We will, we will go in chapter nine, no? <laughs> well, exactly. In some far off chapter, we'll get to it. Um, so to answer these questions, we need to understand the chuva process more deeply. And how do we understand the chuva process more deeply? We have to understand the soul and where the soul come from. Where, the, where does the soul come from? Where's the unique origins of the soul? Because this is all about the soul, right? All of this, all of this, all the connection to God and disconnection, it's all about our soul. So we better really understand our soul and where it comes from. Now, if you've learned the first part of Tanya, the Pate Marim, which a lot of you have been with me, then you're that some of this you're gonna know, right? Like we talk a lot about the soul in those early chapters. We're gonna expand on it a little bit more, but we we have the basic knowledge. Some people go into learning a Gera Satshuva without having ever learned part one. Because a Gera Satshuva is a standalone, like you could open a Gera Satshuva without learning part one of the Tanya. So you're much better off learning part one because now we have a much better foundation. But if you're just opening up the Gera Satshuva and you're reading all about repentance and disconnection and connection, and you're like, okay, then but you've never really learned about the soul and where the soul comes from, then you're not, I mean, what is this all about, right? So this is where the, the altar ever decides to insert, like, wait a second, let's pause. Let's make sure we know how important this is. Where does the soul come from? Why is this, like, what's the origin of the soul? And what are we even talking about here? Because if we're so immersed and engrossed in this return process, like, what are we returning to? Right? What are what are returning to going from? Like we need to understand that, right? So we so the Tanya does remind you we did learn this in part one, chapter two. Part one is Lakutai Marim. Whenever I say part one, we're we're referring to the first part of the Tanya. Um, and we're going to review. We're gonna we're gonna reacquaint ourselves with the soul. Oh my gosh, whoever's in Bozeman, do you hear the thunder? And the lightning and the rain. I'm gonna. I, I did turn my light on before because the sun was so strong. But now I'm gonna turn on my light because it's getting dark. Okay. Um. So, actually, it's actually very interesting because we did talk about the soul. We know about the soul, but we're definitely gonna add this new dimension to the soul that we never discussed in part one. And that would, what we're gonna be doing is, oh gosh, wow, class went by so fast. Um, we're gonna stop soon, but um, we're just gonna start this idea. We're gonna incorporate this name of Hashem that we just discussed, Havaya. We're now going to connect that to our soul. Okay, so we're, we're really like adding layers to our understanding of the soul. We never addressed that in the first part of the Tanya, okay? So I want to quote to you because it says here, for God's Havaya's portion are his people. Okay, Chalak Nishem Havaya Baruch What does that mean? 
that God's people are a portion of the blessed divine name Havaya, the Tetragrammaton. Us people, our soul is a portion of God's name. Not any God's name, because it's soon, which is going to be next class, because we're not going to get to it today. But we know there's many, many God's names, right? There's Havaya, there's Elohim, there's a lot of names. Havaya is the most profound name. And the soul is the piece of Havaya. Okay, now it's like slowly, like, see the building process we're doing here? Like, now we understand why when we sin, we're breaking the name of Havaya, right? Because we are a piece of the name of Havaya, right? Guys, sit with that for a second. Like, we are a piece of God's name. What's God's name? It's God. God's name is God. That's God's name is how, how he reveals himself to us, right? So um, the verse is telling us that every person, oh my, boring, every person, every person contains a soul, right? Which that soul is actually a piece of Havaya, a piece of God's name, Okay. So we have a piece of his name in us. Yeah. Which, which, what does that really mean? It's a piece of him, right? It's the soul. It, that's our soul. It's a, yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's your soul. A piece and a portion of Hashem's name. Okay. Um, so this description of the soul is described as literally divine and a portion of God. Okay, it's very, very powerful, very profound. And we are going to then discuss like how, first of all, how did the soul get into us? And, and what mechanism did God give us a piece of himself? right? And it's crazy. It just, <laughs> outside. <laughs> I'm very distracted because it's like, wow, I'm going to be stuck here for a while. Yes, Robin. Didn't we learn in chapter two that Hashem breathed our soul into us? Dun, da, da, dun. It's exactly where we're going. It's exactly okay. where we're going. And remember, you remember it said here, part one, chapter two, right? Part one, chapter two. How did we get this piece of God inside of us? As a verse states, God blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And it goes on to say, the one who blows, blows from his innards, right? When you blow, that comes from your innermost depths, right? Because when a person blows, it comes from your deepest rooted inner energy, which is why we can't blow endlessly, right? If you're blowing up balloons or you're blowing up inflatable things for the pool, like you, it's exhausting, right? Because it comes from the innermost part of you. So what does this mean? That the, the, 
the fact that Hashem is blowing his soul into us is telling us that it's coming from the deepest place of God, the inner, the most inward attachment that could happen. Now, what's the contrast? The contrast to that is that how did Hashem create the rest of the world? You have to see what's going on outside. I wish I could show you. What's the contrast to speak to blowing the rest of the world? Hashem, how did Hashem create the rest of the world? Through speech, right? Through speech. Speech isn't doesn't come from your innermost self, right? You can speak for a long time. You can speak almost endlessly. It's uh, a superficial energy, like it does take energy but it's not the same energy of blowing. So the rest of the world was created through speech. Our soul was given to us through the act of blowing. Now, of course, the Altarebbe always mentions when he gives a metaphor, like a physical metaphor for Hashem, we understand that this is a metaphor. We know that Hashem isn't actually blowing, right? He doesn't actually speak, he doesn't actually blow, but it's a metaphor for us humans to understand the um, the relationship that Hashem has to the different creations. Blowing connotes a deep inner attachment that comes from his deepest, most place. And speech is a more superficial connection. Yes. Isn't the soul, what comes first, the soul or the body? So when the world was created, the Hashem created the body first. Like Adam and Eve, and then, the body and then, was created okay. first and then blew the soul into the body. Okay. There had to be a vessel for the soul, right? Or else where so is the it? So the vessel came first. The vessel came first because there also would be an, a disembodied soul, which wouldn't, what is that? Angels, basically. Um, so the vessel for the soul came first and then Hashem blew the soul into Adam, right? through his nostrils. Okay, this is where we're gonna stop for today. Um, we're gonna pick up um, discussing further this contrast of blowing and speech. Remember why we're discussing this. We're discussing this because um, we wanna understand the, the origins of the soul. Why do we wanna understand the origins of the soul? Because we need to understand the whole concept of returning, right? What are we returning to? What are, what is this, like, what are we doing? So that's why we're going kind of off on this tangent about the, to remind us where the soul comes from, which will impact and help us understand how we do teshuva, how we, what's the process of repentance. So, so that we could understand like the idea of the cutting off and the idea of like the higher chuva, the lower chuva, right? Where we have a lot of layers that we're peeling away to really understand this concept. Okay. Any questions before we meditate? Okay, good. So we will do a, a meditation. Um, and then if anything comes up afterwards, you will let me know. Okay. I actually, I'm going to, we're going to do a little bit of a different um, breath practice this time. Okay. Um, we're going to change it up. I'm, I've been um, learning some different 
breath work. So I'm gonna share that with you and we'll see how it goes. So while your eyes are still open, just get comfortable in your chair, do some stretches if you need to, take some just deep breaths while you're situating yourself. And then when you feel settled and calm, you can gently close your eyes. So what I wanna to introduce to you um, today is something called box breathing. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. It's a very powerful tool um, and we will just, you know, dip our toe in a little bit today. So what is box breathing? We're, what we're gonna do is we're gonna inhale to the count of four, hold for the count of four, exhale to the count of four, hold, count of four. So it's like a box, right? Inhale, hold, exhale, hold. Okay, we're gonna do four rounds of this box breathing and see how it goes, okay? So together with me, inhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, one, two, three, four. Exhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, one, two, three, four. That was round one. Inhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, one, two, three, four. Exhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, one, two, three, four. Inhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, one, two, three, four. Exhale, one, two, three, four. And hold, one, two, three, four. Last round, inhale. One, two, three, four. Exhale. One, two. Oops, hold. One, sorry, two, three, four. Exhale. One, two, three, four. And hold. One, two, three, four. Let your breath go back to its natural rhythm. And I want to leave you with a few thoughts. So um, when we were discussing the fact that there are certain um, transgressions that chuba doesn't work for, and we clarified that it's, it works, but it has to be higher chuba. There's a letter from the Rebbe that says, which I want, which I think is very powerful that I want you to go home with, is that there can be no question, quote from the Rebbe, there can be no question that chuba is effective in every case and whatever the transgression. For chuba is one of God's commandments and God does not require of us the impossible. Very profound. I'll read it again. There can be no question that chuba is effective in every case and whatever the transgression. For chuba is one of God's commandments and God does not require of us the impossible. So really, no matter what, what we do, chuba is always an option. That's the Rebbe's message.
And the last um, thought that we didn't really discuss, but it's we've discussed peripherally, that is a good thing to think about, is that whoever transgresses the commandments of Torah, it's as if he damages above and damages below. We did talk about that, right? It's not only, you know, so nothing happens in a vacuum. We damage everything around us. Um, he damages himself and he damages all the worlds. This may be compared to a sailor sitting side by side on a ship when one fool among them stands up and decides to drill a hole. Okay, so nothing just affects yourself, right? If we're sinning, it's not just our soul and our body that's being affected. It's the, our physical world, all the other worlds are being affected by our actions. It's all cosmic, you know, connection. Just like, a, like, just like if you're sitting on a boat and one person decides to drill a hole in the bottom of the boat, is it only going to affect the person who drilled the hole? No, the whole boat's going to go down. So remember, like, these, the things, our actions have ramifications. They have ramifications for the good. When we do a good deed and when we're following in God's ways, it has immense impact on the world. And so too, when we refrain from doing God's will or we do the opposite of God's will, that also has ramifications, okay? So just bring your attention back to your breath for a minute. Give a nice big opening inhale open yourself up for whatever god has in store for you and give a nice cleansing exhale get rid of anything that doesn't serve you one more time inhale and exhale let it all go And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Okay, how are we doing? Any questions? Good? Food for thought. Okay, we will move on. Um, so let me just give you guys a heads up that the summer we're going to have a little bit, I mean, not that I'm, our schedule is always a little bit erratic, sorry guys, but the summer, like just expect that I will be here when I can. I think we discussed that it's better that we continue, even though it maybe won't be every week instead of like stopping and having a three month break and then starting to try to start again after the holidays, whatever. So we will continue through the summer, but it will be a little bit more up and down, okay? So like next week already, um, we have a um, Montana Shluchim convention. So all the four Shluchim in Montana, we're getting together and um, coming to Bozeman because we are the head of the state and doing that. So we won't be on class next week, God willing, the following week, yes, but I will keep you posted. Look out for your emails, look out for, you know, information. And I will look forward to being here as much as I can in the summer, but it is a little with kids being off school and camps and this and travel, like it'll be a little bit um, week by week. Thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being here. I love it. How is it us? <laughs> oh my gosh, by the way, um, Maine is definitely on my bucket list. I yeah. really, really, well, let me, let me stop the recording because 
You don't have to drag on 